And placing blame on kids is not going to get us anywhere. Why? Because they're kids. And so by necessity, and by definition, they're going to try to get away with or do the things that they want to do when they want to do it, even when it's sometimes not in their best interest. So in restorative practices, it's really a lot about learning enough about the student so you know what makes them tick, what is important to them, what is um, it about learning and um, education that's going to turn them on. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast, a member of the Education Podcast Network. Today, I'm excited to have on Kristen Clive Barrero. Kristen, like several people we've had on in the past, came as a recommendation from a listener. And I got to be 100% honest with you, when I got the recommendation, a super nice lady, and I thought, I don't know if this is going to work. Because on the surface, it looked like, you know, hey, we we prepare great students. And I was fearful that this was going to be a, hey, our company makes you get great SAT scores or, you know, we help, uh, you know, help you master standardized tests. And man, I couldn't have been more wrong. In my first conversation with her, I was like, I'm so glad I was wrong. And two, you really understand her mission and her passion. This is somebody that doesn't just talk the talk, but walks the walk for sure. Uh, and since then, I've gotten to know her even better. And I'm telling you, I'm excited about what CT3 is doing and what she's trying to do uh, for students and teachers across the nation. All right, enough gabbing for me. Enjoy this one, Kristen Clyde Barrero. All right, now I'm joined by Kristen Clyde Barrero. She is the chief executive officer of CT3. She is also the author of Every Student Every Day, a no-nonsense nurturer approach to reaching all learners. Kristen, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, Don, it's great to be here with you today. So if only sometimes if I only press record on some of the pre-conversations, um, we have been obviously... Uh, we have so much in common. It's it's awesome. But the other thing I loved is, is that this was one of those, somebody from the podcast said, I've got a great guest. And those people have just always worked out so wonderfully. So no pressure. This is going to be a great interview. There you go. No pressure. I got it. Okay. No, no pressure. So um, when we first talked, other than the fact that I was um, really not feeling well, and you picked up on that, I started to really kind of dive in to what CT3 is. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you, and, and I'm sure you'll do a better job of I of describing it, but I like the fact that you called it real time. Um, mm -hmm. But let's dive into CT3 professional development. Sure. So at CT3, we believe that you change practice best um, through giving feedback in real time. And so what we do is we go into schools. All of our work is school-based. Um, we believe that that's the change agent and the support agent for educators and kids across the country. And we train site-based or organization-based coaches to be real-time teacher coaches. And we coach leaders in real time so that they can better support the communities that they serve and better support the teachers that they lead. Um, and real-time teacher coaching, um, while it sounds simple, it's actually quite elegant um, in many ways. So it takes us anywhere from eight to 10 days to train a coach because you're doing a lot of reading body cues and understanding teachers. And it's really based on an asset-based approach to teaching. What is a teacher doing well? And once they receive some additional professional development on high quality, culturally relevant strategies, um, that being the what of great teaching, um, real-time teacher coaching helps with the how and the when. And so folks think that the bug in the ear and the real-time effect of real-time teacher coaching is what is so engaging. And it, you know that's what's sexy and new and different. 
but really it's, you know, the pre-conference and setting that teacher up for success so that they feel really supported in the classroom. Then the real-time teacher coaching session. And then of course the post-conference where you're celebrating teachers and their success and celebrating the students in their classroom and then giving them one to two deliverables that they're going to work on. And then as a coach, I'm going to come back in and support you again. So coaching is, I think, um, I hate to call it a new fad in teaching um, because coaching has been around for a long time, but we're really working to shift the paradigm of coaching and teaching at CT3 um, because in the past coaching has been because of the limited resources we have in education for those folks that are either new or struggling. And if we look to other industries, coaching goes to the highest performers first. And uh, I would be an advocate that coaching is for everyone in teaching. The, the greatest thing about our our, our choice of becoming educators is that there's always something new. Now that can also of course be frustrating, always something new, different or better that we can be doing to serve our kids. Um, and so real-time teacher coaching is really a collaborative way of thinking about how to get in the highest quality culturally relevant strategies in real time to teachers. So they, they feel the success right away. Yeah. One of the things that, that, um, really impressed me was, and I'm about ready to really use a bad cliche or one that is at least cliche, but you meet them where they are, right? So mm-hmm. instead of having a cookie cutter, you you want to understand their environment. You want to understand um, the, the school culture. But then that's when I started asking you a lot of questions the first time in the sense that what my fear was is that you, you had a cookie cutter approach and then you, you laid it on me and you're like, look, great pedagogy is great pedagogy. And mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more because if there's one thing that that sometimes I'm critical of is some of the, some of the fads I've seen of let's fall in love with an app or a device. And while I love some ed tech tools, Mm -hmm. if there's no great teaching skills behind it, um, then that tool now is, is a moot point. So the fact that you're, you're wanting to, to, you said like it's, and actually it doesn't sound easy. It's it's very intricate and it's very time consuming, but understanding, you know, of getting in there first, and understanding some of those intangibles, then possibly working with some ed tech tools or, or whatever, um, which, which I, I've got to ask, um, like when you start working with uh, some of these teachers, who are your ideal candidates first? Because you alluded to the fact that like, okay, you know, you know, sometimes coaching is meant for the high performers. Who would be your ideal candidates if there is a school leader out there listening right now? So ideal candidates are, we, when we come into an organization, <clears throat> excuse me, we train both leaders and coaches on what we call a will skill matrix. And where we're really looking at and measuring will of teachers as well as the skill of teachers. And our job is to help to create some sustainable coaching systems at CT3. So we want to give the coaches and the principals or the directors of the school opportunities to coach you know, high performers, middle performers, and aspiring or new teachers. Um, in their practice. So for us, building a culture of coaching is both about helping those folks know how to coach teachers at all different levels and in all different spaces in their career. Mindset shift as we, as we, have, as we move through our careers, right? Um, but our level of will as teachers needs to stay high. And at CT3, we don't pretend to have the magic pill to bring will to the space of education. I personally feel like your will to improve your practice as a teacher is a professional obligation. Um, that's my philosophy. But if we're looking at a will skill matrix, looking at folks that are high will, and no matter where they are on the skill matrix, that's our job as coaches and teachers is to always support teachers um, and educators for that matter. Because um, sometimes we're coaching educational assistants, you know, that have a really important responsibility for working some of, with the youth in our schools. 
Um, so using that world scale matrix, it's not that any one teacher's the the best case fit. It's also about training coaches and leaders so that they are able to meet all of their stakeholders um, where they are. And so to your point about the cookie cutter approach, the only thing that's even close to that is the actual professional development or the online courses to build a common language of the what of a pedagogical strategy. After that, it's very much, uh, this type of professional development is very much individualized and based on the teacher or the leader's assets and what they already bring to the table, while also recognizing if there's a disempowered mindset that they hold about youth or a particularly empowered mindset that they hold about youth, that we bring forward that empowered mindset. But if there's a disempowered one that we train coaches and leaders to gather data, collect that, Mm. not judge or place blame, but highlight that. So so then we can shift teacher practice and mindset for Mm -hmm. careers. And if we shift a dis, you know, an unrecognized disempower mindset, mm-hmm. we shift how that teacher is impacting, you know, every student for the next 30 years. So that's the power, I think, of real-time teacher coaching is that it gives you the ability to collect this data really quickly and support teachers if and when a disempowered mindset might exist about the students or the communities that they're serving. Because so often we have teachers and communities <clears throat> where they didn't grow up and the cultures are different. And so we want to take out the judgment and really just highlight what is it that our babies need in order to do the best and thrive. And great pedagogy, as you said, is great pedagogy. You know, that's one of the things that um, one, sometimes I'm, I, I get misunderstood in the sense that, uh, you know, my innovation class and some of my messages is, you know, some of our education is irrelevant. And that is not to say all by any means. As a matter of fact, you cannot be innovative if you don't know how to read, write, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. But you hit on a point that is near and dear in my heart in the sense that it is that, you know, I, I love entrepreneurs because they have a different mindset. They just do. Sure. Mm-hmm. They're not waiting for a smoke break. And um, I remember I had on Tom Bilyeu, he was talking to my students and he even said, he's like, you know, how many people here and he was directly talking to my students. He's like, they, you get excited if the fire alarm goes off in your, and I'm not going to say which class he said. And they're like, oh yeah, it's like, a, it's like a 15 minute break. And he goes, okay, how many people here would be ticked off if this fire alarm went off in the innovation class? And they thought about it and they're like, yeah, that's my time. Right. Like that, that's my time to get things done. And so they have a, they have a different mindset of wanting to get things done. And, and so creating that mindset sometimes is so difficult. And, and I think that's one of the things that as I started to dig into your work, um, and I know that you'll see, like, I know you know what I'm talking about here in a second, that no-nonsense nurturer is, like, I think that if you're too understanding, if you're too, like, understanding and acknowledgement of where they've been, that kind of thing is is the first step for sure. Mm-hmm. But that But that whole, no this is some of the mindset, this is some of the skills you need um, because like, this is the way the world works. Um, and and you've, you've even got, that's like one of your guys' terms, like that's one of the things you guys are really big on. So explain to, explain to people that you guys have this no nonsense nurturer uh, approach to you, to the training. Sure. So one of the things I'll say about entrepreneurs is people always think that we're the smartest people in the room and we're not, we're the most persistent people in the room. So this work exists, not because um, I'm really smart, it's because as a principal, I was failing the teachers that I was supporting. I was pretty good with instructional strategies and helping them. I was pretty good with pedagogy and supporting them. I was terrible when it was um, 
as a leader in supporting them if they were struggling with classroom culture or classroom management. And so I was lucky that I led schools in East Palo Alto, California and Oakland, California, that we turned around practice um, and opportunities for kids pretty rapidly. But this was one of my failures. And it was like, okay, how do I fix this? So of course you go to the experts. So I get all the experts to come in and they were all very willing to come into the school because you got all kinds of great press if you came into you know, the schools that I was serving and none of it worked or it worked for 60, 70, maybe 80% of the kids that I chose to serve every day. That wasn't enough for me. And so what No Nonsense Nurture is, was honestly going out, um, I teamed up with Lee Cantor and we went out and we researched what were the highest performing teachers doing and we codified it. So this is not Kristen sitting in the back of some lab at, at University of California, Berkeley. You know, this is me going into classrooms, Lee going into classrooms and us watching and, co- you know, taking field notes on what high performing teachers were doing and how we identified high performing teachers. They were seeing a year and a half more growth on any assessment that was put in front of kids, which is just a great byproduct of good teaching. I'm not advocating for, you know, standardized tests by any means, but if I'm doing a great job, kids are blowing away any test. So they were showing high levels of growth. They had the highest levels of uh, parent and family satisfaction on those surveys and on student surveys and their peers and their administrators rank them highest amongst, you know, everyone on the team. So once you identify these folks, if you can go into their classrooms, whether it be here in San Francisco or in Oakland in the Bay Area, New York, uh, Charlotte, Chicago, New Orleans, trying to think of some of the other, Washington, D.C. is another place we went. The highest performing teachers in schools had skills or had things that they were doing that were almost identical. There were some different things they were doing in New York, you know, because you can be a little snappier in New York maybe than you can in the South and in Charlotte. But these teachers were building, the cornerstone of everything they were doing was building life-altering relationships with kids. They knew every single one of their kids inside out and upside down. They knew their hopes, their fears, their dreams. They knew what these kids wanted to be when they grew up. They connected not only um, one-on-one, but oftentimes even in a whole class with kids. Why? Because they realized that they could learn as much from their youth as their youth could learn from them. So none of them saw their kids as empty vessels, but as contributors in their classroom. So the life-altering relationships were the cornerstone, which is where you get the nurturer of no-nonsense nurturer. But these teachers also held incredibly high expectations, and they had no excuses for themselves. They understood that many of the kids, many of the youth that they were serving had things going on at home or in their communities that were really tough. Um, So it wasn't about no excuses for kids. It was about no excuses for myself as an educator and finding and figuring out what was it that my kids needed to unlock the key to their success. And so at the beginning of the school year, it was things like precise directions. And so in every student every day, I talk about how these teachers create roadmaps for success through precise directions. It was about uh, positive narration not going right away into kids who weren't following the precise directions and providing consequences, but instead noticing the kids and creating a positive momentum who are doing exactly what was supposed to be happening. And then noting that to the rest of the students, not through praise, but just like calling it out, narrating it. Um, And that way, if I miss the directions the first time, or if I need to see what it is, I can look to one of my peers and be like, oh, I can do that. Let me get right on that. And then they had accountability systems. And what was interesting about their accountability systems, if there was anything about incentives in their classroom, it was collective. They were building collective efficacy before collective efficacy was cool. 
right? They were building a sense of community in their classrooms and amongst their peers. And oftentimes these incentive systems started off with behaviors at the beginning of the classroom, 100% attendance, all kids being in seats on time, 100% homework. But they would evolve like in October, November, as these deep life-altering relationships were building over the course of the year to 10% increases on lab scores amongst your whole team. So kids were working together, supporting one another, tutoring, mentoring one another, not just during class time, but frankly, after class time too, you'd see them in the cafeterias and after school in their teacher's classroom, working together so everybody was achieving more. And they also had consequences in their classroom. And consequences were never punishment. They were always because of, I care too much about you to not let you succeed. And in those consequences, there might be something like, you know, a stay in the game conversation or a sort of conversation with the student, but it wasn't just something happening to the student. It was something that the student and the teacher were engaging in together. Because if a student found it necessary to um, uh, make a choice that wasn't in their best benefit or the best benefit of the classroom culture, there was a relationship that needed to continue to build with that teacher and that teacher understood that. Um, so what's cool about the term no-nonsense nurture is that it's not actually something that I came up with. As I was coding the data around what kids were talking about with their teachers, it was coming up like, you know, they talk about, uh, you know, Miss Smith, what, she's amazing in the classroom. She keeps everyone's attention. She holds us to high expectations and she doesn't play but she knows that my mom is struggling with a mental illness and checks in with me every single day and texts me on Saturdays and Sundays just to make sure everything's going well for me. Or, you know, Mr. Dubuque, you know, he coaches our soccer team. He's super engaged. He has high expectations for all of us. But if I don't bring my homework in, he keeps me in my seat in my classroom till 8 p.m. to make sure that I'm meeting his rigorous expectations for academics as well. But then he'll drive me home. Like, it was by an all means necessary that these kids would talk about their teachers, but they would talk about them as warm and demanding, no nonsense and nurturing. Yeah. And so the codes that the kids were giving me actually named the body of work. So I'm really endearing. I love the term just because honestly, the kids coined that as to what were these amazing teachers that were building life altering relationships with them and how they changed their lives. Um, yeah for the better and gave them access, you know, to educational experiences. So we talk a lot about what are these teachers doing in that book, every student, every day. But again, as an entrepreneur, it's not what Kristen Clyborero thinks is what teachers should do. It's what great teachers are doing. And yeah. just, I'm just codifying it to give it access to hopefully teachers across the country. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's getting that culture of that. Cause I, I have sometimes run into the same problem myself in the sense that, um, I expect these things because you should want it. Um, I don't really get hung up on grades as much as I do kind of like on that entrepreneur's journey, you know, so you failed at something. That's fine. Yep. Like, it, you know, I, I, I remember making this, like, it seemed to me shocking when I was watching two kids play video games years ago and every time they failed, they'd laugh and press reset. Like they liked it. Those kids and, had an amazing growth mindset. They're ready right, to be awesome. That's awesome. Today. Like yeah. I've ne I've never met a kid who didn't fail at a video game and didn't go. I mean, they may they may get a little toxic or or you know, I'm sorry, throwing gamer terms out in rage. But I mean, like they press reset. And I was like, what if what if, like? So I started asking kids. I'm like, if you spent because back then video games cost seventy five bucks a pop as opposed right. to free Fortnite. Um, spending a lot of money on a free game. But you know, if if you beat your game on your first try. Like the kids were like, oh, I'd want my money back. I don't want it to be easy. I want to be challenged. 
Yeah. Yet in oh, education, a lot of times the cool teacher is the teacher that doesn't really make you do anything and you get an A. And I'm like, that's the, that's part of the problem. Having some consistency and letting you know, you should want this. This should bother you if you didn't do anything as opposed to, can I, can I get away with it? And, right. and, uh, I, I, I'm always keen to that. And so when, when you guys are talking about, you know, your, your no nonsense approach and, and, you know, being a no nonsense nurturer, I was like, ah, aha, that's it. It's the yin and the yang that you need to absolutely. engage all kids. Yep, absolutely. absolutely. And speaking of yin and yang, and, and, and I, I've seen some buzz here lately. And, and at times I think that I'm really sensitive of the word innovation being sure. out the door. And, and you know, I, I joke even sometimes at a keynote, like right before my book came out that had the word innovation in it, I saw a Cottonelle commercial because now everything is innovative. <laughs> And, and, you know, Cottonelle had a new innovative layer of softness. I'm like, great. Something you wipe your butt with is now innovative. <laughs> and so I had the same kind of like feeling that all of a sudden I've seen some kind of hip um, blogs talk about restorative practices, mm-hmm, which I sure. think is really common sense. But sometimes when I, I, I fear that it will kind of come and go unless it's unpacked in a really like, okay, this is what it is. So I know that you've talked about it, written about it. Tell me about the, the, what is what is restorative practices mean in our schools? Sure, restorative practices are ways that they're they're the crux of how you want to build relationships with kids through failure. Is oftentimes when you have the ability to build the deepest of relationships with kids. I even write about this in the book. Is that if as a teacher I make a mistake, apologize for it, own it. Right. And you making a mistake makes you vulnerable and humanizes you for your kids. And that's a relationship building opportunity. What restorative practices is basically it's one part of a no nonsense nurture approach. And it's an incredibly important part. But if students are really struggling with something, going in there and trying to figure out why they're struggling and recognizing that you as the educator are the adult and placing blame on kids is not going to get us anywhere. Why? Because they're kids. And so by necessity, and by definition, they're going to try to get away with or do the things that they want to do when they want to do it, even when it's sometimes not in their best interest. So in restorative practices, it's really a lot about learning enough about the student so you know what makes them tick, what is important to them, what is um, it about learning and um, education that's going to turn them on. Um, and so restorative practice is just if, if something's breaking down, getting in there and figuring out with a student how to better build a relationship so that you can work um, with them, not against them in the classroom. That's the way that I would explain it. Now, Don, you know, there's a, a thousand and one different definitions of restorative practice out there now. And I think what's really important for us as educators is just on a staff to come together in terms of what do we collectively believe restorative practices are and how are we going to ensure that we're implementing it across our team of teachers and educators. Um, Because then what you'll see is is that kids will use it with one another. Um, But restorative practices is also at the heart of it allowing for failure. Um, And in failure is where we learn the most. I know in a lot of interviews that I do, again, you know, if it's about innovation or entrepreneurship, they're like, tell me one thing that you failed at. And I'm like, you mean one today? <laughs> like one in my life? Like how many failures do we experience in a day? The key is, is by teaching kids on how to take those failures and learn from them and um, persevere through them. Um, and uh, 
that's the most enriched learning that we can provide for kids, whether it's in a writing activity or if it's a behavior that we choose to engage in that isn't, you know, what's, what's in the best interest of myself or my peers. But there's learning opportunities in that. And one thing I'll say that we, we need to be aware of, and many cultural race theorists talk about this, is that, you know, kids have to know we care before they care to learn. And that's becoming more and more prevalent in our schools today. And so it's not about going in there and teaching content. We have to go in every day as educators to teach kids. And restorative practice is going to be a big part of building those yeah. relationships. Yeah. Um, in our pre-talk, you talked a little bit about um, some of the um, some of the mindset help that you have mm-hmm. received from your dad. Yeah, and, sure. Um, no, and I, I really like hearing yeah. that because um, one, kind of go back over that because your 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 dad wasn't necessarily hung up on the grades as much as he was wanting you to experience and and learn. So right. walk us through that. Sure. So my dad was a serial entrepreneur. Um, you know, growing up, I had no idea ever what my dad was dabbling in or doing. Um, he had a couple of main businesses that, you know, I could talk to friends about or what have you, but he was a serial entrepreneur. And one of the things that he loved doing was helping um, folks that were younger than him, you know, uh, build their businesses and those types of things. And um, as my mom was definitely the, the academic in the family, not my dad, you know, my dad came back from um, you know, the Navy and had this GI bill. And so went to college, but had a lot of his girlfriends, I think, write his papers or what have you. And college was, you know, it was great. It was an experience, but for him is more about what do I have to learn at my job? How do I learn to get ahead? What are they missing in this space that, you know, I can add to this field? And, um, I came home, uh, after my first semester at Miami university where I worked really hard, you know, to get great grades that first semester, you know, make Dean's list and all that kind of stuff. And, so excited to present my grades to my dad and he looks at me and drops the f-bomb you know and I'm like did I give him the like what the what the f are you doing here Kristen and I'm like did I give him the wrong piece of paper like what's going on and I look and it's my grades and it's basically a 4.0 you know like what dad like aren't you proud like all this money you're investing in me at Miami like it's paying off he's like I'm not sending you there to get straight, straight A's. I'm sending you there for life experiences and to have fun in the last four years that you're on my dime. Um, he was really about like, are you going to go study abroad? What do you, don't just study science, like what your teachers in high school are telling you to study, study whatever you want, like get your hands dirty, fail at some classes, um, engage with professors that um, you normally wouldn't want to take classes from. There, there are folks that you could you know, learn more from. So he really pushed us and, um, you know, not to take school so seriously, but more like as an opportunity. Um, now I have to say, I still, <laughs> my, I had enough of my mother in me that good grades were important. And so maybe that was a luxury for him to be able to have those conversations with us. But, you know, he, he practiced what he preached when he was looking for uh, leaders to hire into his companies. He looked for the BC student that had really great interpersonal skills um, that could relate to people and make connections and wasn't afraid of failure. Um, so my dad didn't just preach it to his three daughters. He, you know, he did it, you know, and how he led each of his companies and his businesses that, um, and how he supported others in that field. So, uh, yeah, I, w- I was lucky that I had a dad that, you know, didn't expect, um, you know, the straight A's, but I, and I had a mom who didn't expect straight A's. She expected us to always just do our best, whatever that was. Right. 
Well, um, and that was pretty darn ahead of its time. I mean, all of a sudden, it, it's <laughs> people are starting to question this now. And so this is, sure. you know, I, heck, up till, I don't know how many years ago, because I started to have that mentality myself, is that like the last time I checked, all three of my kids were getting at, at minimum straight A's and maybe a B, but I don't right. care. Right. I, but I want the, what I want them to do is like, like your dad, be uncomfortable and stretch yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, take, take, take the clock. Cause that, sorry, soapbox moment. That, that's one of the things that I, I've had an issue with. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with always pursuing just the AP schedule, Right. But I've had several, I've had some kids complain that like they want to take a class that's kind of out of the normal or will be possibly pursuing some creativity in the arts. And the parents going, well, no, you can't because now you may not be able to get into that famous college. Yeah. You know, that, that extra GPA boost you're going to get by memorizing a bunch of things for the AP is the pathway to success. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, no, it's not. So I, I don't know. I, I was definitely that kid. My dad told me two classes I had to take in high school were Spanish and typing, <laughs> right? Like I had to take the, the computer skills class. Cause so he's like, your mom's not going to type your papers forever, but it didn't get AP credit. I was like, dad, I can't take that class. I can only get a 4.0 in that class. I can't get a 4.4 or whatever. He's like, I don't care. Like that's a life skill. You need that. And then for him, I was taking Russian. He's like, what are you going to do with Russian? Cold war is over. Like, let's move on. You know, like Spanish is what you need to be taking. And it was like, a discussion, if not an argument. Right. Um, and so, and you know, he always let us explore and do what we wanted, but he had opinions around certain things. And for him, his opinions were always rooted in what's going to serve you in life. Yeah. You know, you can do whatever else you want, but if it di- it's not going to serve you in the greater interest of the folks around you. And so how you can, you can do whatever you want, as long as it does two things, makes you happy and impacts your community. Yeah. Well, the thing, so. the thing I love about that is, is that um, having been able to talk to you now for, for a while and, and getting to see what CT3 is, I can see all this through your work now. Mm-hmm. And that's about the best compliment I can, as, as, a, as, a, as a man who deeply loves his, his daughters and his son. Yeah, um, It's just that the, these, these lessons I can now see in your work. And, and being a no-nonsense nurturer and, and making sure that you have those restorative practices and, and just allowing people to focus on great instruction, but also make sure that culture builds around that instruction, not just you know, making kids great memorizers. Um, okay, so people are listening to this and saying, okay, CT3, where can I find more? Or how do I get a hold of Kristen? Tell everybody all the important deets. Oh, sure. So we have a website, uh, CT, the number three, education.com. So CT3.com. If you go to our team member site, you'll find my picture there and you can just click right there and um, it'll send an email directly to me or any one of our team members that you're interested in talking to. Um, Our team members are all over the country. So um, we come together twice a year. We're actually, I actually leave from Montgomery, Alabama today to go meet all of them. Uh, We're going to go to uh, Brian Stevenson, as you might know, as a civil rights attorney and EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative that he started, just opened a new museum uh, from uh, slavery to mass incarceration. So we're going to go experience that in the his, uh, National Peace Memorial together while we also deliver, you know, develop IP and you know, talk about how to best support uh, the practices of the educators that we're impacting across the country. So I'm excited to go meet them in Montgomery today. Um, but yeah, great educators from all over the country coming together at ct3education.com and uh, how we can... Uh, you know, come into organizations and support you and them is, is, is all of our life's calling and life's work. We, 
all the folks on our team live and breathe this work um, because we believe in the power of access and education and that being one of the civil rights movements, quite, quite honestly, of, of our generation. Um, and so, uh, yeah, t- check out the website and the tools that are on there. And we'd love to get any feedback that you have about those tools because they are ever evolving because uh, kids aren't the same today as they will be 10 days from now. And <laughs> in this, this technological movement that is today, uh, the way we educate and how we think about pedagogy in classroom management is ever changing. So we're constantly, you know, thinking about the research that we're doing and the protocols that we're presenting to educators across the country. So always welcome the feedback. We're an organization that gives a lot of feedback and we certainly like to receive a lot of feedback in return. All right. Again, Kristen, I sincerely appreciate you you being on, sharing these great stories and just honestly pursuing this kind of culture for schools that a lot of times are, are underserved. So you're, you're, I can, I, I literally can feel and hear where your heart is and, Seriously, I admire it so much. So if there's anything else we could do, please let us know. And likewise, if you guys are listening to this, uh, Kristen has been really great about getting back. So if you have any questions for her, reach out, go to ct3.com or ct3education.com, excuse me, and uh, take a look at what she's doing. It's been so much fun talking with you, Don. I look forward to doing it again sometime in the future. Absolutely. 